Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 6 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, North by Northwest and Excitement. Among my earliest experiences going away to film school was watching unfamiliar older movies. So I saw Citizen Kane, Berkeley in the 60s, Anti-Mame, and North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock from 1959. At that time, I thought the movie was kind of clunky and something of a James Bond ripoff. The problem is I didn't realize its place in history before James Bond and its ilk, and the fact of its clunkiness has more to do with my perceptions of proper movie action and a lack of respect for all that this movie accomplished in the late 1950s. Let's remember a key idea that Alfred Hitchcock is often associated with, and that is the notion of a red herring. Which is to say, many of his movies, North by Northwest is a great object example, are centered on nonsense. There really is no reason to summarize the plot of the movie. In fact, the plot of the movie is just to make the engine go for set pieces of extraordinary excitement. A red herring, then, is the excuse that doesn't really matter to help a story unravel. So here goes. A quick summary of North by Northwest suggests it is about an ad man in New York City named Roger Thornhill. Roger Thornhill is twice divorced, has a very skilled personal assistant, and an overbearing mother who is dependent upon him at least somewhat for financial support. One evening after work, he meets some fellow admin for drinks and raises his hand when another man's name is called. This other man's name, George Kaplan, is in fact a placeholder. No such person named George Kaplan actually exists. He is a front for an intelligence agency the American government is using to sneak up upon some kind of ne'er-do-well doing bad things. The trouble is, thugs working for the bad guy, a fellow named Van Dam, played by James Mason, mistake our guy, Roger Thornhill, for this George Kaplan and try to kill him. 
Thereafter, Roger Thornhill, in an effort to sort out why he was targeted for murder and who this George Kaplan is, causes him to continually show up wherever George Kaplan is supposed to be in order to run down Van Damme. Along the way, he meets Eve Kendall, and she is actually an intelligence agent hired by the U.S. government to get close to Van Damme and bring him down. And what is Van Damme really doing? We learn super late in the movie, he seems to be transmitting film hidden in art objects to somebody because it has something to do with undermining the U.S. government. I've already said well more than is necessary. What you really need to understand here is that Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, is a movie star playing a guy conscious of imagery who is unaware he's a patsy in a global conspiracy that he doesn't understand, and all he wants to do is save the girl, Eve Kendall, played by Ava Marie Saint. Even casual moviegoers of movie history may be aware of certain set pieces from North by Northwest. The main ones that come instantly to mind are a struggle on the literal face of Mount Rushmore's presidents sculpted in stone, a weird biplane shooting at and chasing Cary Grant as he runs through a cornfield, and a strange kind of a struggle and chase at the United Nations building in New York City. What do all of these things have in common, and why is it important that we single out Cary Grant's performance, and what's the value of all of these moving parts? Well, to put this into its context, let's remember that movies are and have always been an empathy machine. Movie makers understand that their work is a method for causing strangers who have a similar and shared experience with one another on purpose as they view on-screen art and entertainment. This is not casually done, and for anybody who has ever studied film history, even in a slight way, they may be aware that Alfred Hitchcock is one of the master tacticians of rehearsing a movie in his head, translating it into storyboards, and so making a movie itself is the least interesting thing in his whole life. Dreaming up interesting scenarios that allowed things to play out visually and orally, using music and sound effects, stars doing things, was the great fantasy of Hitchcock's life. This is important to realize because he did this so skillfully, he could know exactly when he would make a group of strangers his audience hiss and smile, look away from the screen, and laugh all on purpose exactly when he wanted us to feel certain things. The keystone of accomplishing this empathy machine is offering us, the audience, a sense of pleasure in exchange for our rapt attention staring up at the screen and enjoying the escapism into a wonderful adventure, in this case, North by Northwest. Hitchcock's pleasure is knowing he's manipulating us, causing us to have the feels and get away with telling this nonsense story that nonetheless captures some emotionally realistic excitement because of his casting choices, the set pieces that he designs, the props, and the odd turns of phrase that make this movie so pleasant to listen to and to watch. Also on the heels of this movie, we should recognize peak style, that is, the way that 
the Hollywood system in the late 1950s had shifted away from the classical style elements tied to classical Hollywood studios and was becoming a medium in which huge gobs of money were being poured into select topics led by marquee cast and crew members like Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock in an effort to deliberately grab audience attention and attract folks to auditorium spaces and have them leave their televisions at home to avoid the baseball diamond and otherwise continue to consume movies because movies offered them something they could not get elsewhere. Let me unpack one moment that's particularly stunning to me as I've watched this movie probably every 10 years since I was 18 years old. When we meet Cary Grant in this movie, he's fast-talking, he's suave, he's well-costumed, his hair is just so, his skin is bronzed, he has visual charm, and he oozes charisma. We see that oversized personality periodically reduced and transformed into something of a caricature, and he's in on the gag. Example. There comes a scene when our guy Roger Thornhill meets Eve Kendall on a train. She realizes he's in trouble and they begin a flirtation whereby she invites him back to her overnight car. Remember, this is very taboo. Unmarried people suggesting they're going to have a casual sexual relationship simply because it's fun couldn't be said as bluntly as I've just described it, but we are absolutely certain that's what's going on. And yet, there is a moment while he is stowed away in the bathroom so she can keep him concealed where he goes through her shaving kit and discovers a very small razor, no bigger than one joint of his thumb. He holds this up and we see how little it is and it points out how big his head is, that is, how big a star Cary Grant is and how little these tools to maintain his stardom are and the fact of his recognizing all of these traits mean that Hitchcock is making a joke at the expense of his lead actor that we can notice too and all of us audience members Cary Grant Hitchcock can have a giggle all on purpose that's by design and that's a form of excitement that's very small stakes no car chases no gunshots but still a commentary on the nature of Hollywood and of stardom right in the middle of this movie but let's stay on this train for just a moment there's a lot of winning repartee between Eve and Roger I know I look vaguely familiar yes you feel you've seen me somewhere before Mm-hmm. Funny how I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. It's a nice face. You think so? I wouldn't say it if I didn't. Oh, you're that type. What type? Honest. Not really. Good, because all these women frighten me. Why? I don't know. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. Because you're not honest with them? Exactly. Like that business about the seven parking tickets? What I mean is, the moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. Think how lucky I am to have been seated here. Well, luck had nothing to do with it. Fate? I tipped the steward $5 to seat you here if you should come in. Let's also notice the final image of the movie. 
there's a gigantic sequence of chasing across Mount Rushmore's faces. It appears that Eve is going to fall to her death. Roger captures her by the hand. I can't make it! Yes, you can. Come on. Cut. Come along, Mrs. Thornhill. We don't know how they got off the face of Mount Rushmore. Cut. We watch the train go into a tunnel. The symbol here is intercourse. These images are right in front of us. But if we're not paying attention to what they are, what they mean, and what they suggest, we miss part of the fun. And yet, the lasting value of something like North by Northwest is in the careful movement of sound and of image to create that artificial excitement so many of us look for when we go to movies to escape the doldrums of our everyday realities. I want to unpack briefly the very famous scene of Roger Thornhill being chased by a biplane in a field. On the way there, I'd like you to realize that there are on-screen techniques that compete directly with other leisure pursuits from the 1950s that Hitchcock pursues in this sequence and in this movie, and that makes evident certain off-screen distribution and exhibition practices that Hitchcock and his production staff were also making use of to ensure that this movie and this sequence would be so thrilling. First, the on-screen techniques. He casts a world-renowned star in Cary Grant and makes him look small, taking this very verbal performer and removing his words. We have an almost silent sequence of a man simply stranded on a rural highway trying to rendezvous with somebody he's never met in the hopes of unpacking the entire red herring-based narrative he's involved with, and we simply wait with him. We also see intense color imagery. It is a hot day. We can tell that the sun is bright. We can see the bubbles of sweat across his brow. We know it is an unpleasant circumstance because he's squinting and he doesn't know what's going to happen around him. It's a wide screen, and we hear the hum of a biplane that's crop dusting off in the distance, but we think nothing of it because that seems natural in farmland. The camera pans, and then we have different angles. As Roger looks around him, we cut and see what Roger sees. When Roger turns his head the other way, we cut and see what Roger sees, and largely it's a whole bank of nearly nothing. This widescreen presentation showcases this on-location shoot. It's definitely not inside of an artificial studio. Nothing here is not part of the realistic world of what it would look like if you stepped off a bus in rural America for a rendezvous with somebody you've never met with the hopes of unpacking why it is people are trying to murder you. And then the biplane turns off its crop dust and aims towards Roger and strafes him dives to the ground, and we have great cutaway shots to Roger's point of view, seeing the plane sweep across the sky to re-attack him. All of this happens combining stunt work, trick photography, rear projection, and lots of careful cuts to demonstrate exactly where we are so we are never confused. And, of course, if we can turn the volume up on our home system or see it surrounding us in an auditorium equipped with surround sound speakers, it will appear to us that the plane is also attacking us where we sit, putting us in the very same danger that Roger is in on screen. 
In the end of it all, he's able to escape the circumstance and move on to the next problem that he faces. This scene is not important to answer why he's there, why he's being attacked. It doesn't matter to us. It's simply exciting because of the very slow burn and payoff of watching the scene come to completion. In fact, the instant it's done, the thoughtful viewer is likely to wipe their brow and think, that was pretty nifty. What did it have to do with the story? And that's the point. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with anything. Yes, it can be tied to the way that Eve is trying to conceal herself and preserve her identity, and therefore conceal and preserve the identity of Roger Thornhill, who is not this man, George Kaplan. But it doesn't need to last this long, be this elaborate, requiring all of these moving parts. It can simply be simpler. Now, off-screen and behind the scenes, what adds up to this movie, that sequence, and this pairing of Hitchcock and Cary Grant has to do with the way that in the late 1950s, after the collapse of the old Hollywood system due to antitrust action in the late 1940s, old studios of yore were no longer able to simply force exhibitors to show whatever they gave them. By 1959, big companies like MGM, which financed this with Alfred Hitchcock as the director, were forced to negotiate with specific theaters and specific theater chains one title at a time and ensure that an exhibitor wanted that title or else the exhibitor would not agree to show the thing. Which means, you bring to the table your very best, most exciting efforts to stimulate a home audience to leave their homes and go to the theater which an exhibitor wants because they can sell more popcorn. All of that's happening in the background, which lends itself to these kinds of gigantic spectacles we see in North by Northwest, where this guy, Roger Thornhill, migrates first from New York City out to Long Island, back to New York City, then across the country, and so on, finally ending up on the face of Mount Rushmore, and then back into a train. This pursuit of interesting locales with interesting activities is meant to get people off their couches and into theater seats because that's what exhibitors want to show, not boring stuff that won't drive any interest. We see that this is not an inexpensive offering. A movie like North by Northwest requires many ducats and lots of good professional health. So, in the group of crew members that helped Alfred Hitchcock realize this, he's drawing on a script written by Ernest Lehman, who at that point was an emerging superstar among screenwriters who would continue to have a lengthy and very well-celebrated career from that point forward. We see that he hires Robert Burks, a longtime contributor of his, to be the cinematographer. We see the editor, George Tomasini, another person in the Hitchcock wolf pack of great crew leads he'd been using for years. And perhaps above all, we hear the music of Bernard Herrmann. We also notice that whole tracts of this movie can be expressed to audiences who do not speak the language the characters themselves are speaking. Let me say that again. This movie, while conducted in English, and while it's speedy and has wit to it, and it can be quite funny, is in the end devoted to almost non-sync sound silent film craft, like that sequence of Roger being chased by a biplane. That means that an audience member in India, an audience member in China, can in the same way enjoy the same material because they grasp what's happening visually. It's a triumph of the spectacular format of a movie which, in the late 1950s, was simply impossible on TV screens that were never bigger than 11 or 13 inches at the diagonal. 
Today's viewer in 2023 may be forgiven for not noting that people of yore had small TV screens. So, when Cary Grant, as Roger Thornhill, is attempting to make love with Eve Kendall, played by Eva Marie Saint, we have these glorious, really nicely lit close-ups of their faces while they paw one another's cheeks. Their heads on a screen of the 1950s could have been 40 feet tall. We also notice this is a moment when there starts to be a fixed schedule across the year of certain kinds of entertainment that are released at certain times of the year. We know that North by Northwest was a summertime release, which is typically a time when a lot of very action-oriented, spectacular entertainment is released, partly to give people an excuse to go into public venues and enjoy air conditioning on hot days, but also because a lot of young people are out of school, especially teens. Finally, we also see that in the late 1950s, there is a growing interest in certain communities for repertory theater spaces or art houses. That is, screens devoted not to the most recent commercial stuff from Hollywood and the other main producers of new material, but sometimes showing things that are new but from abroad, whether that's France or Japan, or else movies that are old have already been released and need to be brought forward for new consideration. A character like Alfred Hitchcock, who in 1959 releases this movie North by Northwest, had already been making movies for more than 30 years. And his whole career was beginning to be viewed through the lens that there is a Hitchcockian story style, that there is a Hitchcockian set of precepts of how images work and what kinds of performers he uses. And there began to be communities of interest around universities and just in certain large places with enclaves of people interested in the arts full stop that wanted to review a career or a body of work, and with somebody like Hitchcock dating back to the silent years in Britain, this was suddenly possible and would bloom, therefore creating added interest for the latest releases from this important world-historic filmmaker. Finally, if it's not already clear, North by Northwest offers us sheer escapism. We have the chance to go hang out with this very charming, very suave and debonair man called Cary Grant. We get to hang out with him as he woos this beautiful woman named Ava Marie Saint. We get to listen to the purring voice of James Mason, the bad guy. And around them, a set of supporting actors we may recognize from other roles they've had in years since in more recent material, but perhaps most of all, Martin Landau, Leonard, who is one of the toadies of our bad guy Van Damme. Let's also realize that this movie did legitimately offer a view of things that people in the late 1950s may have heard about, but were unlikely to be able to ever go see in their lifetimes. Here, I'm thinking about the fact that the United Nations compound, and the building in particular standing at its center, was, in the 1950s, considered a rare piece of unusual architecture. So you can turn to a movie like this and get a glimpse of that edifice, have an impression of what it looks and feels like to traverse its hallways to stand on its tiles, even if you will never personally set foot in that building. Also, there's a certain sumptuousness to the style of Roger Thornhill's life. As a successful ad man, he's very aware of how images sell people on what it is you are trying to accomplish. And, let's be frank, he looks great in his clothes, and he's constantly tipping people with cash in hand to get himself in the front of a line or earn privileges that help him move along his journey.
Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boopity-doo!